We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. This will do it. This will do it. Scott Drew's dream comes true. Coach Drew and Baylor complete college basketball's greatest rebound and rebuild with a championship. And that was the culmination of one of the most, honestly, Tommy, impressive championship performances I can remember in a long time following one of the greatest games on Saturday I've ever seen. I mentioned yesterday to Cooley that, you know, we all have this recency bias and we all want to feel like we were there for whatever. And Saturday night was special. That game between Gonzaga and UCLA will go down. It's not an exaggeration. It'll go down as one of the greatest start-to-finish college basketball games of all time. Last night, you know, won't go down as the greatest, you know, performance. But I'll tell you what, for a team that I really loved after they destroyed Wisconsin and I played them on the money line for the rest of the tournament to win it, and I played them last night, I just thought defensively and offensively, that was a mauling of an opponent that was on its way to a potential and in almost, you know, preordained like, you know, going through this tournament, so many people thought that no Gonzaga could not be beat. That was a one-sided beatdown. Um and it was impressive. Baylor That's wins. That's the word I would use. It was it was one of the most impressive one-sided wins in in a in a championship game I've ever seen. I agree with that. You know, I know a lot of people want the drama of a close championship game, and and I was not, you know, I wasn't expecting a blowout on the show yesterday. I picked Baylor to win outright. I liked Baylor. I thought they were the better team. On radio yesterday, it was really interesting. I had Jimmy Patsos on. I had Chris Naki on. Both of them said, you know what? I've watched both teams a lot. I just think Baylor is the better team. And that was really not the prevailing sentiment, you know, in the national media or in the college basketball media. Gonzaga was really the choice to win last night and to take the momentum that they had from that big win. Um, you know, a lot of the discussion from Nance and Raftery and Hill, which I, I got to tell you, I just do not think is a very good broadcast team at all. And I'm a big Jim, Jim Nance guy, and I'll be watching them for four straight days this weekend in Augusta. But I, 
you know, the the constant, you know, um, excuse making for UCLA being, you know, tired and exhausted and don't have their legs. That was 2% of it. 98% of it is that Baylor was just flat out much better. And if they played a best of seven, and I said this this morning and I put a poll out, I think Baylor would win a best of seven four games to one. I would, wouldn't shock me if they swept them. I don't think Gonzaga could win two games, fresh legs or not fresh legs, against that team. That team, I mentioned it multiple times dur- during the tournament, they were the best defensive team in the field. They had the best all-around player in the field. And Davion Mitchell, he became my favorite player. Um, but they just were... They were a short yardage defense, Tommy, on third and one that was in the backfield, you know, tackling people. They couldn't, the offense couldn't make a half a yard. It was so impressive. And then offensively, they just shot the lights out. It was, it was destruction. The final score was nowhere reflective of how much of a beating, you know, a mauling it truly was. You know, what was interesting is, I mean, all I could think of was, uh, in some ways, how reminiscent, not the, not the mauling, obviously not the mauling, but Baylor winning this national championship, uh, you know, was reminded me so much of what Maryland did in 2002. I mean, to me, the program before Baylor that had come the farthest from the gutter to the, to the penthouse, from the outhouse to the penthouse was Maryland under Gary Williams. You know, going from the program he took over that that uh, wasn't on, you know, couldn't go to postseason play for a couple of years. I had sanctions against them to win in a national championship. Now, Baylor, uh, who you have to admit, Baylor had a far worse hand to start from than than, than Maryland. I mean, they were yeah, coming back. They had from... they had a player murder another player. Yes. I mean, yeah. it was a little bit so, different. Bob right, Wade. That's it. Yeah, Bob Wade but, just gave a player a ride in, uh, to class yeah. and gave him a hat. Yeah. So, I mean, to come back Rudy from Archer. that to a national championship, and something I didn't know until I read it this morning, both that Maryland team and Baylor team are, are only two of the only three national championship teams to not have a McDonald's All-American on them. Who's the third? Uh, who was the third? Uh, it's, I don't know. It, it's okay. I UConn. 2014 UConn. Oh, okay. That team, that 2014 UConn team. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. Maryland then the following year after they won the championship signed multiple uh, McDonald's All-Americans and neither one of them <laughs> turned out to be very good. Travis Garrison was okay. Um, but anyway, um, it, it was just, you know, so I think there were a couple of things about the game last night. First of all, the start, like it was over before the first under 16 timeout it was 11 to 1 and you could just tell that there was a major athletic difference first of all um you know defensively they, they just you you'd not seen Gonzaga labor that much you know Gonzaga was a beautiful offensive team to watch and I don't want to diminish them at all they were a great team Tommy this was the matchup i you know i think Michigan had Isaiah Livers not been hurt that they could have been here too um, I think they were that good, and Michigan would have played uh, Gonzaga in one of the semifinals, and I think a healthy Michigan team could have been there and could have beaten Gonzaga because I think Michigan also was very good defensively. 
but you just saw it early on. It was just a defensive mismatch um, for for Gonzaga. Gonzaga had been a free-flowing, beautiful, UCLA-esque team to watch from the 70s, you know, or an Indiana team. The teams that always, you know, had five men in motion, and all of them were skilled, and all of them were good, and they were the highest-scoring team in the nation. And I did say yesterday that I just didn't think Gonzaga was that great defensively. I mean, I, I, BYU had scored 53 and a half against him just three, four weeks ago, and they didn't play, you know, the kind of teams night in and night out. Look, if the, if Gonzaga had been in the Big Ten or the Big 12, they would have entered this tournament with three or four losses. They would have been really good and would have been a one seed, but they would have entered this tournament with, you know, three or four losses. Baylor, without the COVID pause, probably would have entered this tournament undefeated coming out of the Big 12. They lost the way they were playing before the COVID break. They were killing people and, you know, and beating the shit out of really good teams. And then they had the month away from hoops and they came back and they weren't right. They lost to Kansas. They lost Oklahoma State. And it's one of the reasons I didn't pick them because I, when I started watching them, when people were telling me early in the year, Kevin, forget about you know Gonzaga and Michigan and Illinois. You got to watch Baylor, and I wasn't watching them that much early in the year. I was gonna watch them against Gonzaga, but they didn't play Gonzaga. They had that game canceled, you know, uh, early in the year. That was a big one versus two matchup. But the Wisconsin game in the second round. And then the Villanova final 13 minutes in the Sweet 16, I was like, there's, n- I mean, Houston's really good defensively. Baylor's the best defensive team. And Davion Mitchell's the best defender in this tournament. And oh, by the way, they're one of the best three point shooting teams, if not the best three point shooting team in the tournament. And yeah. so I immediately. I mean, they led the country in three point yeah. shooting. So I took them on the money line, you know, at plus 250 after that Wisconsin game because I really thought they were going to win the tournament. And uh, th- this notion so, – so the game, let me just – a couple of quick points. Number one, Suggs getting two quick fouls really did hurt Gonzaga, but it wasn't going to make much of a difference. Um, it, it, Suggs was was uh, was definitely stymied, suffocated. Um, Timmy had uh, no chance to do what he's been doing. Um, Baylor, the thing that kept Gonzaga within a, you know occasional striking range is that Baylor was called for just a lot of fouls in that first half. They were in foul trouble too. Um, I, I thought that the, the defense was incredible by Baylor. I thought that their shooting was unconscious, obviously, there for a while. Gonzaga went zone Tommy to try to switch things up, and it worked for about three or four possessions. And then Baylor got playmakers into the middle of that zone um, Teague in particular, and then they just started to riddle it. Um, I I, th- I just in watching that game, I never ever for a moment, and it was I think my predisposition to thinking that Baylor was the best team colored the way I thought in the moment, even when Gonzaga cut it to nine. I just didn't think Gonzaga was anywhere near as good. And that it, and after that start, I look, I went into the game thinking, you know, look, Gonzaga's capable of, of scoring and Baylor's capable of an off-shooting night. And if that happens, you know, Baylor could lose this game. But after the first five minutes, I didn't think there was any chance Gonzaga had to win that game. And I just really enjoyed the 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 dominance in in Gonzaga I enjoyed all tournament long too to watch them but to see them 
you know, with length and athleticism and smarts and system just be dismantled that way. It was it was really, really um I don't know. I mean, it, most people are rooting for a close game. I was rooting for Baylor because I had them, but I was also so blown away by just how good they were in this tournament. Stanford Steve, you know, Scott's, you know, co-host on SportsCenter, he said to me like two months ago, he goes, Baylor is winning this whole thing. And I'm like, I know, I got to watch them more. I haven't watched them enough. And he said, no, you're going to watch them and you're going to tell me that they're going to win it. And then I watched him off the COVID thing and I'm like, you know, they're, they're good. They're really good, but they weren't playing well. And then I think I called him after the Wisconsin game and I said, they are your champion. You were 100% right. And um, when you get that much defense to go with great offense, you, you, it's just impossible. Gonzaga ended up giving up 176 points in their last two games. I know. What do you know about Scott Drew, the uh, coach? I mean, you know, so I, I mentioned this this morning. There was this time with Scott Drew at one point during his career, and it's probably as recently as five years ago. Sketchy. Um, oh, yeah. Not can't yeah. coach. He was considered a cheater. Cheater, Somehow sketchy, cheater. Yeah. really can't coach, always is loaded with talent, always gets bounced. You know, they had not made it. Um, to the final four until this year, he hadn't been to a final. Uh, he hadn't been to a final four yet. They they were getting bounced on the regular in the first weekend of the tournament. They had been to Sweet Sixteens, but they always were loaded with talent. And so there was always this impression that he was, you know, a really good recruiter and maybe a sketchy recruiter. Um, and uh, and um, uh, but that he wasn't a very good coach. Uh, I'm watching him in this tournament, when you can get a team to defend like that, and by the way, Tommy, they're so good at not only keeping the ball and their men in front of them, but when they do help, that you know they they recover and they close out. There were times last night where like Gonzaga would actually get the ball moving and it would go to Kispert, you know, in the corner for an open three, and you would see just Mitchell closing out and Kispert couldn't even get off the shot. And then the next pass would be deflected. They played so together defensively. And they were able – by the way, they played a 1-3-1 zone last night for a couple of possessions that looked like it was man-to-man, like it was so aggressive. It was just well done, everything about them. Now, they were a team offensively, unlike Gonzaga, that really tried to identify, especially against a team like Gonzaga that was switching every screen, which you just – you know, they kept getting mismatches. And Baylor just wanted the mismatches, and then they would let their players make plays. You know, that's a lot of basketball these days, and it's part of what you probably don't love about it. It's what Gary Williams doesn't love about it, is you don't see what you saw with Gonzaga a lot offensively, with five guys involved and all the ball constantly moving and 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 guys moving without the ball. You see the ball sticking a lot. And what, you know, Baylor does is what a lot of teams do. Um they have sets, they run plays, but a lot of times it just comes down to we're going to put somebody in a you know, a ball screen and we're going to get the switch and we're going to get the matchup we want and we're going to space the floor and and Teague or Butler or Mitchell is going to beat the guy cuz he's just better. And if the defense is if the defense collapses, they'll make a pass, they'll make the play. You know, a lot of teams play that way. 
you know, nowadays. I mean, that's all, Tommy, I saw at the youth level, at the AAU level. Just space the floor, one ball screen, and let, you know. You know, and you know the, 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 the big issue with that is if that's not working for them offensively, they don't know how to do plan B. A lot of teams don't. You're right. And yeah. a lot of teams, the plan B you know, is to, you know, if you've got a big guy is to then, all right, we'll try to run our offense through the post and we'll do it that way. Like Gonzaga had so many options, you know, they yeah. had so many ways to beat you, but, um, but Baylor, you know, that that's oversimplifying what they do. A lot of teams do that. They were able to identify against a switching defense. They were able to identify the matchups they liked and took advantage of them a lot of the night. They didn't have great possessions every um, offensive pos- uh, set, but their defense was just so good. Um, and then, you know, they got a little bit stymied by the zone that that uh, Gonzaga threw at them. And just the, 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 the concession, if you will, of the understanding that Mark Few had of we can't guard them. <laughs> we have to play a zone because we, as the number one team in the country who hasn't lost a game, we can't guard them. By the way, yeah. uh, Nance had a um, a story that he told as uh, a conversation that he had with Mark Few where he he told it at some point during the game and he said, you know, um, coming off that emotional, one of the greatest moments, one of the greatest games, you know, it can be emotionally exhausting. And he said, I, I think he referenced Herb Brooks, the coach of the 1980 um, uh, hockey team, and said after beating the Russians in the semifinals, they still had to beat Finland. And Mark Few, uh, Nance relayed the story, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, Mark Few said, a Jim. Uh, Baylor's not Finland. <laughs> As if to say, no, we are playing the best in the next game. I think he knew it. Some of the cutaways early on, you could tell he was like, what do we do here? What do we do? Because this isn't something that we've seen this year. And it wasn't. And I personally thought that Butler was phenomenal in the game, but I think Davion Mitchell was the best all-around player in the tournament. Um, I, I can't wait to see him at the next level, although I'd love to watch him in college again. Um, he's got so many different sort of, you know, he's got some Oladipo, he's got some Westbrook, he's got Donovan Mitchell, and everybody points to him because of the name and number 45. He's going to be a really, really interesting pro because he is relentless. Like, there's so much about him that you're just like, that's the kind of guy that usually has a really good NBA career because he's just so hyper-competitive and plays with such great energy. Um, It was impressive, man. It was impressive. Yes, it was. Very impressive. Um, A a couple of other quick things. Number one, um, this is uh, a nod to my good friend Joe Yasharoff. Um, I think I think I mentioned this on Twitter this morning, but Joe tweeted something out last night that I just I had been screaming about all tournament long. First of all, let me just say I, I'm not a big fan of Raftery and Hill as the number one team with Nance anymore. Give me Jimmy Jackson. Give me a couple of other people now. I, that ship. I know Raftery is one of the nicest people in broadcasting. I know that Grant Hill is, you know, an all-time great and, and a phenomenal communicator. There's just no constructive criticism during 
these broadcasts when there should be. You know, they looked at the call that Suggs had the block on Cody Riley in the game the other night, and we saw that replay 10 times, and we saw Cody Riley's hand being completely raked in it, affecting the shot. And they kept talking about what a great block it was and how clean it was. And last night, it was a constant excuse-making affair for for UC, uh, for Gonzaga having, you know, they're just not the same. They, they're exhausted. Exhausted for what? Playing an extra five minutes? Let me tell you something. Houston... If anybody watched Houston, the two seed, they were one of the best and most physical defensive teams of the season. Baylor handled him, but I guarantee you Baylor didn't come out of that game fresh as daisies. Um, and, and it was all about, you know, Gonzaga last night. I just thought they missed the mark. But anyway, Yasharov tweeted out during the game. You know Joe very well. Joe, longtime television executive in town, um, sports television executive. I don't think that's exaggerating um, his career. He said, CBS, please stop showing off all your cameras during live action. Use them only for replay, thanks. CBS did this throughout the tournament, and I just it drove me fucking crazy. They would give you this angle from, like, the deep corner of the arena. And you're, like, looking at it. You're like, can I see the game like I'm normally watching the game? And what happens in these things, Tommy, in these big events, a lot of times the directors, they get real fancy. They got all these cameras to work with. They got all these shots. And they may not even be the biggest of basketball fans. But my my advice always in these situations, and CBS was a culprit during this tournament. There were Every single game, you'd get 30 seconds to a minute of an angle that was just impossible to understand, to, to see what was going on. There is a reason that the tickets deep in the corner in the bowels of an arena are half the price of the tickets at midcourt. Okay? Give us the midcourt view, the way we watch games, the best seat in the house. We don't need the other stuff. I thought that was spot on. Um, One other thing um, real quickly before we get to the next subject, which will be Sam Darnold. So after these championship games – you get the all-way-too-early preseason top 25 for the next year. You know, ESPN does it, Sports does it, and, you know, it's incomplete because you don't know who's going and who's staying at this point. But you and I haven't had the conversation since Thursday, but, you know, Turgeon got extended, and Maryland had a phenomenal weekend, um, you know, with getting two of the biggest-time transfers in the country, um, Wahab from Georgetown and Fats Russell from Rhode Island. And I said um, when they made those when they got those acquisitions if Aaron Wiggins comes back this is you know a top 15 team minimum next year preseason. Well, Jeff Goodman has him number 5 preseason. ESPN's got him 6 preseason. CBS has him low. Gary Parrish put him at 13 preseason. It all assumes Wiggins comes back. If Wiggins doesn't come back, they'll still be in the top 25, but they'll be closer to 25 than they will five. Um, By the way, I'm not – I mean, I love that stuff. I want to be thought of as a good team. I want to be thought of as a team that can, you know, can win it all potentially or certainly be a Final Four contender. But it doesn't mean shit. Like these things will, these things will change because of you know commits, and then players will surprise people by staying, and so this thing will will switch. But if Aaron Wiggins comes back, which I think he will, he should, 
because he's got a chance to play on a big-time team next year and be an all, get All-American consideration, be first-team All-Big Ten preseason, and move himself from maybe undrafted into the first round. He's got that chance. Um, but none of this means anything. To those of you that are pissed off that Turgeon got the extension and don't care about the transfers and just you know are miserable – um, I, I hear you. This doesn't mean anything. Like, Maryland's been ranked preseason under Turgeon in the top 10 multiple times. They were preseason number two in 2015, you know, and thought to be, you know, a favorite to win the national championship, and they got to the Sweet 16. That was the one Sweet 16 team. And la- the 2019 team was ranked in the top 10 multiple times, but typically between 10 and 15, and had a legitimate chance but didn't get to play in the tournament. I want the March results, too. I'm going to judge them on March results. Trust me, it's going to be part of the evaluation. But he really turned the narrative around really quickly. I mean, he went from being, you know. But you do notice there's a weariness over excitement about new recruits. Well, this transfer portal, there shouldn't be a weariness. This is, but this there, is, there's a weariness yeah. about of, of what I can see from Maryland fans who have been through this this uh, March excitement uh, level enough, and they're, they're, they're a little bit tired of it. Well, last year, we gave them a reprieve. We gave them no excitement, no expectations, and they went to the tournament and won a game. <laughs> so they, they had a year off from the expectations. I, I, I know what you're saying, and the expectations haven't been – consistently top five top ten every year that's not that that would be inaccurate but you know it's really interesting to watch college basketball now you had two older teams last night with the exception of Suggs you know you had two teams that had transfers you know yeah. you you got a lot of teams that rely on transfers and this is the you know this year in the COVID year is the all-time transfer portal year and Maryland went after it and they last year they went after two and they missed on you know, two or three guys that would have been the difference between a top 15, you know, team last year preseason and a team that would have been much better um, and and being what they were. Um, they missed on Carly Jones in particular, who was the runner-up ACC player of the year at Louisville, and they, th- that was one they thought they had. And if he had played on that team, Maryland would have been playing into the second weekend potentially. They would have been favored anyway. They would have been a top four seed in a region. Whether or not they would have gotten okay. through is, is something different. But my, my point about the recruiting is at some point, uh, recruiting becomes more of an indictment than a, a, a measure of success if you don't have the results to match up with it by results, if you measure results by tournament success. Well, again, the irony there is I agree with you when you have big time recruiting classes or big time transfers, you know, by the way, their recruiting class in terms of the incoming freshmen, it's borderline top 20 ish, top 25 ish with the transfers. Obviously that's why they are elevated. And with the hopeful return of an Aaron Wiggins who really took a big step, but remember the narrative about him this year, we were picked 12th. They were actually picked 10th and we didn't get the recruits. And so that was also an indictment. Right, the reverse yes. this year was the indictment that he didn't recruit well enough and he overachieved. So you know, there it's true. It's like you went this year was an overachieving coaching job, if you will, an underwhelming recruiting job, and he's had 
recruiting jobs that have been really good, but he's under you know underachieved in March with those teams. So yeah, I mean, but the transfer you know um, and the you know fifth year eligibility, all that stuff is is really a, a big part of what's going on in college basketball now because the older teams are the teams that are winning. You know, the teams that are older are the teams that typically are are doing better. By the way, the other piece of Maryland news, I saw it and I I had an expectation, which is why I said there's going to be some more news coming. Some of it could be somewhat disappointing. Daryl Morsell is going to try the NBA route. He's not going to be an NBA player, but he's also uh, going to put himself into the transfer portal. He hasn't ruled out coming back to Maryland. But I'm going to tell you right now, you know, he's he he's got that ability because of the COVID year, even though this was his senior year, to play a fifth year in college because of COVID. This year did not count for anybody. All sophomores will remain sophomores. All juniors remain juniors. And all seniors, if they want, can come back for a second senior year. Um, he feels very much like he doesn't want to take the spots away from some of the emerging younger players that would, you know, not get the same playing time. And so there is, you know, this sense that he has that maybe it's time. And he said all the right things about his time at Maryland. I want Daryl to come back. Uh, I, you know, I'm not saying that I don't want him to come back, and I'm not saying that Turge doesn't want him to come back. But I think there's an understanding among the people in the know that Daryl, this is a selfless thing from Daryl. And Daryl also may be looking for just a new experience, you know, given this, you know, gift of like a fifth free year. Um, so we'll see. Um, but anyway, uh, want to get to the Sam Darnold trade when we come back? Absolutely. All right, we'll do that right after this word from one of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So yesterday, Tommy, um, I was in the car and I was listening to something, and the Darnold trade came across, the Sam Darnold trade, from the Jets to the Panthers. And I, I'm always interested in the, the trade value conversation. I think it's the one that we as fans always are off on. We don't get right a lot. We don't really understand who got the better. I mean, we have opinions. I'm not saying that we don't have opinions about it. We have lots of opinions about it, but I think... My first reaction was, hmm, 
They got a second and a fourth next year, but they only had to give up a sixth this year. And my immediate reaction was, I don't know who that's a good deal for. But if I, if Washington hadn't signed Ryan Fitzpatrick and they were still in the search for a quarterback, I would have given that up to the Jets if I were Washington. But I think Sam Darnold has more to him than many of those of you who are listening. Many of you don't think he's a very good quarterback. Many of you don't think he's going to be, you know, a top half of the league starter. And you have, you know, and by the way, I'm not certain about how I feel on this subject. I just think he was in a terrible situation. I loved him coming out of USC. And I know that there were times when I watched him against really good teams that he played very well. And I think he's extremely young. And by the way, in many ways, Joe Brady in particular is the offensive coordinator in Carolina. You know he signed off on this deal. Matt Rule did too. That's, you know, very much a credible guy. I mean, the guy that, you know, uh, was with Drew Brees, the guy that was with Joe Burrow at LSU, the guy that I really think is going to be a head coach here sooner than later. He signed off on this deal for Darnold. But there are two things. Number one is who got the better of the deal. Uh, And number two is if you, as a Washington fan, would you, with no Ryan Fitzpatrick and no other answer and only um, Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke on the roster, would you have given up a second, a fourth, and a sixth for Sam Darnold? I think I would have. I'm pleased with Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know I am. I'm really excited about Ryan Fitzpatrick. But at the same time, that to me... Now remember, with Darnold, you got to make the decision in a month to pick up the fifth-year option for $18 million for 2022, which Carolina is no doubt going to do. They're going to do that. Those of you that said Teddy Bridgewater still has got a chance, no, he doesn't. He Sam, had his chance. Sam Darnold was traded for. They've got to find out immediately if Sam Darnold's yes. their guy or not. Yeah, he had so, his chance, Teddy Bridgewater. He did not help himself last year on the market going into this year. That's for sure. I, I didn't think he played poorly, poorly. Um, I, I, but, you know, but they, they didn't trade three picks and pass, by the way, they haven't passed yet. But more likely than not, passing on on drafting a quarterback. Now they can at, at eight, they can add a big time weapon, another weapon for Darnold. Um, but there, this isn't going to be Sam Darnold or Teddy Bridgewater coin flip training camp battle. You know, now Darnold has been injured a bunch and he's missed a lot of games, so they might keep Bridgewater um, for this upcoming season. But they need if they're picking up his fifth year option, which they're going to do in a month. They're playing him. He's going to play the next year or two years to find out whether or not they want to sign him to a long-term deal and whether or not he's the guy. But to make this move says to me two things. One, that a really credible offensive guru mind like Joe Brady thinks there's something to Sam Darnold, and he passed on the opportunity potentially at eight to draft one of the five quarterbacks. Or maybe, you know, I know that they've tried to move up. Um, And then two, Teddy Bridgewater is, you know, either done or he's a backup for this next year in Carolina. Um, By the way, they add another big-time offensive weapon at eight. 
with that offensive coordinator, it's a very interesting team next year. You know, yes, with, it with, is. With, with McCaffrey yeah. back. You've got an aggressive owner there. Yes, you do in David Tepper. You do. Yeah. Uh, who, wants, who wants to make his mark quickly. Uh, did, did Washington have a strong interest in Darnold? I don't think so. Um, I think okay. JP – I'm going to give JP credit because I'm pretty sure it was JP. If it was John or Ben or Nikki or somebody else, I apologize. But I think JP did tweet out that he he, he learned that there was never any serious interest – in Darnold. Now, I think that they talked about Darnold a bunch, um, but JP's reporting that there was never any serious interest in Darnold. You know, the the, um, the evaluation from the trade was really interesting because in recent conversations about Darnold, um, there was the discussion that Darnold could be had for a third. Maybe I had... Um, Cole Kublik, who I really like. He's one of the best college football analysts and draft guys out there. Works for the SEC Network and, and ESPN. Um, he's a favorite of Scott's uh, show as well, which is sort of how I got him coming on the show You know, starting two years ago. And he said, I, I said, I, well, there are two things. I said, um, uh, number one, um, what, uh, what do you think of Kyle Pitts? Is he the best uh, player in the draft, which Cooley thinks he is? He said, yeah, you could say that he's the best player in the draft. Um, but I, in, in a conversation about Darnold, he's like, look, there's some conversation that he could be had for like a mid-round pick at this point because the Jets don't have a lot of leverage. They've made it very clear they're going to take Zach Wilson at number two. This guy's got the you know the fifth-year option that you have to pick up in a month from now, and then you got to pay $18 million bucks to, uh, in 2022 with that fifth-year option, and so they don't have a lot of leverage. Well, basically most of the NFL experts think that the Jets did very well in this trade, very well, and that the Panthers overpaid. You know, if you if you add up all the, dra- the Jimmy Johnson draft chart points, you know, basically the second, fourth, even though it's next year, and that devalues it a little bit, and I do understand that, and then the sixth this year, if you are conservative about where Carolina will finish – it adds up to like, you know, basically a high second round, potentially a late first round equivalent, but but basically a second round, you know, a high second round pick, you know, late first round, depending on where, where Carolina. So that's why a lot of these guys think the Jets did very well. Well, we'll find out. I mean, uh, uh, you don't think that Sam Darnold would have been a step up from, from – uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Um, I I I like Sam Darnold, and I would have liked to have had him for what Carolina paid for him. I would have done that. You know, I would have done the equivalent of like a second rounder. And I know, by the way, when this first became a conversation, I said it's going to take a first rounder or a second plus to get him. And a lot of you have hung on the first rounder. That's fine. And and I'll 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 admit, you know, I probably overvalued him at the at the jump. But ultimately, it was a second plus a lot of things that could end up depending on where Carolina drafts as first round value uh, for Darnold. But um, that aside. I mean, Darnold has a chance if he is what a lot of people thought he was coming out of USC, and it was the organization more than it was him in New York, he's got a chance to be a top half of the league starter or better on a good football team. 
So yeah. Well, I, then you would take Darnold over Fitzpatrick. I, I would. I he would be your quarterback for the next four or five years, foreseeably. Well, four or five, ten. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Darnold's you know has that <clears throat> potential. Um, but I'm not sure about Darnold. But before they got Fitzpatrick, if you told me that I could get Darnold for next year's second and fourth and this year's sixth, I I absolutely, as a Washington fan, would have endorsed that. But still, even after they got Fitzpatrick, if they had told you you could still get Darnold, no, not after, and you thought not Darnold a, was a better option, yeah, for the future, why would what what would what would Fitzpatrick's presence make any difference at all? Well, because Fitzpatrick may not, and I've said this to you, may not just be a one-year answer. He may be a two-year answer, and you may have well, that's more. That's a op- big stretch. You, I don't think so. It is. It's a stretch. He'll be forty. He's not. He's not Brady. Brady is Brady. I'm. I think there's a chance that he plays more than one year here. Okay, <clears throat> that may be, but compared to getting your quarterback for the next ten years. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Well, getting getting him nothing. getting him is not the way I would describe it. Rolling the dice that you're getting that guy would have it would have been worth it. I'm not convinced he's the guy, but there's right. enough there for me watching Darnold to think that a lot of the, the the stuff that he a lot of those terrible games and a lot of the terrible results had a lot to do with people like Adam Gase and the organization and the players around him. Now well, the, I think you're not alone. I think most of the NFL feels that way. Yeah, but not everybody's buying. No, but I think a lot of it, a lot of it blame Adam Gase for a lot of stuff that went happening there. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people do. Look, Carolina clearly thinks it's more the Jets than Darnold yeah. because again, it's not just what they gave up. It's the fact that they're going to have to pick up the fifth year option in May and commit to paying him eighteen million dollars in 2022. Which means they came to the conclusion that there's enough there that they believe in in terms of him being able to do it and becoming their franchise quarterback um, that they're willing to extend themselves in a contractual situation that they would not have had with a drafted player at number eight. So, you know, it's going to be interesting, the, the, the draft and what may have fallen to them at eight. Maybe they just didn't think you know, Lance or, or Fields, if either one of them had, you know, fallen to eight that, or Mac Jones, although Adam yeah. Schefter reported this morning, I guess that San Francisco is locked in on Mac Jones, which is yeah, not that's a big what surprise they keep saying. Yeah. So, um, an interesting off season, like, you know, the draft and the number of quarterbacks in the, the positioning for those quarterbacks by teams without them. And, you know, I'm okay with what our team did. I'm okay with what they did. I would have pre- most most people are. I would have preferred most, Matt Stafford. Most NFL observers, well, I think most people would have too. Yeah. But most NFL observers give the Washington football team uh, a good grade for their uh, free agency uh, so far. Can I tell you something real quickly? Um, so yesterday, uh, somebody sent me from the Washington football team social media department this five-minute video called Making the Brand. Have you seen yes. it? Yes. Yeah. No, I have not seen it. I'm not on the mailing list of the Washington uh, social media uh, football team social media department. So I want to be clear on this. Um <clears throat> 
I know what their job is, and you know, and they've got to continue to create interest, and they've got to create, you know, interest in the name. And there's a business side to, to the operation, and there is a football side to the operation. I'm not, you know, I'm not being critical of anybody that's doing their job in their social media department. But, 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 <laughs> I, but I couldn't give a shit about any of this. And so I retweeted the video and I just wrote, I hope Micah Parsons falls to number 19. So what was that response about? What Translate that for me. Okay, so oh, just, that's, just, that's just why that that's, you don't care? That's why, about... I, that's why I brought it okay. up, because I wanted to see okay. if you got it quickly or if I just completely failed, which I did because most people basically came back at me and said, oh, Kev, he's not falling to 19. Uh, you know, And if he does fall to 19, it wasn't really about Micah Parsons at 19. It was about, can we just focus on winning football games? And a lot of people, you know, got it, you know, ha ha, that's funny. Uh, that, that was great. Made me laugh out loud. Uh, but whatever. It fell flat because it probably wasn't, you know, presented in the right way. I was just wondering if you would get it. My point overall is just that I just, I've had enough, and you have as well, enough um, close contact with this organization over a long period of time. And they just have always seemed to miss the point. It's always been over the years about everything but winning. And like I said when Jason Wright got hired, hey, a really impressive guy, a McKinsey guy, all the whole thing. If the football team doesn't win, his primary responsibility, which is PL, profit and loss responsibility. The revenues won't be there if they don't win. He has zero control over whether or not he's successful at his job. Now, hiring practices and implementing better best practices, you know, best business practices. I, I, I mean, this has been a clown show of an organization for so long. You and I and so many people in town that have been in the sports media have witnessed it. Those of us that worked at the radio station that was the flagship and owned by the owner for all intents and purposes really got an up-close of what a clown show it was. And I know there are some young people working super hard in this social media department and that good things are happening in the organization. I'm not, I just, at this point, my God, get a name already. All right. And and most importantly, just win. Just give us a product that doesn't go seven and nine and makes the play. I want to, I want twelve and five next year. I want thirteen and four. I want a real winning. I want a real season. We haven't had one since nineteen ninety one. It's been thirty years I since know. they've won more than ten games in a year. And I just think every time I see some of this stuff, and I know that people will lump me into, well, now Tommy's influence is really just too much (laughs) over you, which is fine. But Tommy's right. It's like we've sat there and we've sat in meetings before and just said, no, 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 just win. Just win. None of this other stuff matters. And I just... It's, it's consistently with me in watching them so often about everything else. 
and I know it's changed, and I believe that it's changed a little bit, but I don't believe it's changed for good. I'm not that naive. That's a wise, wise attitude. You know what they say, fool me 20 times, shame on me. <laughs> it, you, once you get above three, it's really shame on me. Um, <laughs> and it's been, look, it's been shame on me. Um, I have, I've been suckered in in the past. I, what, I was suckered in mostly by the – I would say that I was suckered in mostly by the Shanahan regime. Well, so was I on that. No, I thought the Shanahan era was a new era. I did. I just didn't think a two-time Super Bowl winning coach would get steamrolled uh, by this organization. I just didn't think it was possible. Yeah. I um, I was suckered by that one. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Um, baseball season starts for the Nationals tonight. More on that right after this word from one of our sponsors. Well, the embarrassment of the COVID situation and missing all of those games. I mean, I've just never seen an organization more embarrassed publicly than the Nats have over the last four days. I'm, I'm hoping that you've come <laughs> around to my way of thinking. I haven't. And, and losing four games and throwing up all over yourself. Well, they're going to play. When 29 other teams managed to get it right. They're going to play. It's an embarrassment. They? Are they going to replay them at some point? Yeah, they're going to replay them at some point. Right. Um, can you remember? Uh, you right... have come around in my way of thinking, right? No, I haven't. Can oh you? Oh my god! Can you remember right now the teams that that missed a bunch of games early on in the shortened season last year? That doesn't matter. It's opening day. There's there's several important days in a baseball year for how many for teams missed opening day in 2020? Who were the teams? That you know, missed... and, who were the teams that opening missed day opening day in 2020? What? Do you remember who the teams were that missed opening day in 2020? They all did. Well, not. I'm talking about when they finally decided on. But that, that's no one was even paying attention by then. Uh, okay, all right. That was a that was a, a warp situation to begin with. No, this was a the brand new baseball is back, baby. Oh, okay, not in Washington. Who are they going to put on the field this afternoon? <laughs> I'm serious. The, the, a catcher who they just signed off the street because both their catchers, it looks like. Are, are either in quarantine or, or tested positive. We don't know who's who. Why? So, but, uh, why? But that's that's the deal. Why so sensitive over the identifying information? And players could say it if they wanted to. Why do you think that is? Well, I I think it's uh, you know, I think it's you know the 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 laws protecting medical information. Yeah, but I think it's as simple as that. But a player can say, "I'm one of the players that tested positive." Yeah, and do you think that they would be somehow ostracized or canceled? No, I don't think they'd be ostracized. <laughs> I think a lot of people figured it out, but uh, I just think players would would only want to give you what what you need to know, not what you think you should know. The point is, so I think it, most players we're, we're going to find out you know, tonight, aren't your we? Business. We're going to find out huh? tonight. We're going to find out tonight. Well, if they, we don't know, we can't tell the difference between the quarantined and the positive right, uh, players yet. Fair enough. So, um, but uh, I mean, look, I mean, this, this is this is a disaster for this team in, in this division to to start off the season having to make up games with with twenty uh, percent of your your roster 
depleted and, you know, you wanted to get off to a fast start. I know they've decided to make this some kind of rallying cry, like suck it up or something like that. But uh, you can't paint this as anything more than a disaster. They could overcome it. Of course they could. In the middle of June when they're playing, you know, the Phillies in a three-game set and they're 22 and 24 or 22 and 17 or whatever it would be, nobody's going to remember this. Okay. (laughs) What if they're 17 and 22? I I don't know. I I just don't – I mean, it's bad luck, unfortunately, for them. I don't think that there was anything sinister involved. There's nothing sinister involved. Or anything. They lost control okay. <clears throat> of this, of, of taking care uh, of this, of, of protection. And, they and, did. And you know that there was negligence here? Well, all I know Versus is that 29 luck. other teams managed to go from spring training back to home and not have four or five positive COVID tests. Somebody screwed up, Kevin. Don't tell me nobody screwed up. Tell you what, they were celebrating the Marlins as they made it to the postseason last year. And how many games did they miss early in that season? Christ, it seemed like you know they missed like two weeks of that season. What season? The season last year. There was a season. What season? There was a season. And by the what way, se- there pretty, was no season it was a last pretty, year. It was a pretty good World Series too. There was no season last year. <laughs> okay. Ah. Uh... What time? But I'll be there tonight. What times we're living in, huh? I'll be there. Four oh five start. Well, you're all fully vaccinated, so you, you, you yes. you've got a new lease on life. Um, <laughs> all right. What else from today? Uh, do we? This have will any- be my first oh. appearance in public. I mean, besides home mm-hmm. and uh, recreation, since uh, February of 2020. You gonna clean that beard up, Grizzly Adams? Not me, baby. <laughs> I am. I'm going to be the hairiest guy in the press box. Okay. Um, I did want to just mention one thing real quickly. I watched Jeopardy last night with Aaron Rodgers hosting. I thought he was really good at it. And I think you that, have a lot of time on your hands. I we watch Jeopardy every night in my house. Okay. Uh, pretty much every night. If, if if we're in 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 the house and in the kitchen, dinner's prepared or being eaten, Jeopardy is on every night. Um, I thought he was really good. I thought he was excellent, and apparently that he wants to do this. This is what he wants his post career to be. Pretty funny, wouldn't it? You know, he really uh, he's not super personality animated but he was very i thought very efficient like he really moved it along he knew what he was doing he had anecdotes he had and then you did hear about one of the final jeopardy um questions uh posed by one of the contestants that had no idea what the answer was the field goal right yeah Yeah. whose idea was it to kick the field goal (laughs) (laughs) now you know I mean, my impression is game show hosting is pretty lucrative. It pays pretty well. Oh, it really does, doesn't it? I mean, it pays a lot more than sitting in a booth, an NFL booth on Sundays, I think. Oh, does it? Well, not if... I think so. You think if you're the number one guy, you think if you're Tony Romo, that Alex Trebek made more than Tony Romo? I think Drew Carey makes a ton of money for hosting The Price is Right. And I think there's a lot of money in it. Tell you what, there's more money than doing a podcast. Oh, my God. Trebek's annual salary, yeah. the final year of Jeopardy, was $18 million a year. Wow. Really? I didn't realize it was that. Did yeah, you? Yeah, it's good money. 
I, I know it's good money based on what I know about Drew Carey. Uh, that he makes he makes a, a ton of money hosting. I mean, Drew Carey does he does Vegas shows a couple times a year, and he hosts The Price Is Right. How do they do? I think um, I don't know that I know this for sure, but I think like Jeopardy, what they do is they take basically one day a week and do five shows. I think that I don't know if it's one day a week or what, but I know they shoot several shows a day. Yeah, but this to get it added away. But like Pat Sajak and Alex Trebek aren't working every day of the week, and they're making ridiculous money. Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Um, Trebek's annual salary from Jeopardy was 18 million dollars. The show taped 46 days a year, only 46. There you go. And they shot five episodes. And they shot five episodes per day. In other words, go. he earned $391,000 every tape day, 78000 per actual episode. Um, Pat Sajak was basically comparable. And Vanna yeah. White, I never, I, I don't watch Wheel of Fortune. Um, Neither do I. But he was the, uh, he was the biggest. Yeah, I recommend to you, if you get a chance on demand, PBS, watch uh, the Hemingway documentary. It started last I, night. I, I heard it was great. Yeah, I heard really it good great. stuff. By the way, that was um, that was one of the, the uh, categories last night with Aaron Rodgers hosting Jeopardy was Hemingway, and they talked yeah. about the the PBS series starting. And Aaron Rodgers acted like he knew a lot about it. Maybe he did. Okay, uh, that's it for for the day. I don't think there's anything else to talk about. Um, it's opening day, baby. Let's get excited. All right, go enjoy the game. Tommy's going to be at it. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. I hope Max Scherzer doesn't get hurt after basically having one throwing session and missing all those days because of the terrible embarrassment of of the COVID um, positive tests. All right, Tommy. See ya. Bye. Everybody, have a great day. <laughs>